0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: I think when we come to God with things, we so often come feeling like He's probably not going to answer our request. Why do we do that? But I think it's a fairly common way that we approach the Lord. But of course, that's the opposite of the way the Bible tells us that we should approach the Lord.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, in a message titled, The Deeper Need.
1: Now, here's Pastor Brian. All right, so we come to our text here as we move along in our studies through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to get to looking at um, how Jesus addresses the deeper need here in a moment. But we want to walk through a few things before we get to that. But just to put it in context, Jesus had gone on a circuit preaching in the synagogues throughout all of Galilee, and he's now returned home to Capernaum. So the things that we just read about here in the verses, these things are happening there in the home, probably the home of uh, Simon Peter, where it was Jesus's home as well uh, when he was there in town. So these things are happening there in the home. Now, Matthew and Luke also record this event. Uh, But interestingly, Matthew says nothing about the man being lowered in through the roof. Nothing at all. Doesn't even mention that part of it. He just talks about the paralytic being healed. And Luke tells us an interesting little side note that Pharisees and teachers of the law were there out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So in this massive crowd that gathered in the home there, there were these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. And as we see in the story, they were there more to find fault with Jesus than to actually receive from his teaching. But Luke adds just an interesting little note, Luke says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And so let's look at a couple of things here. Let's look first of all at the scene itself. So the scene is, um, they are gathered together in the house so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So the houses in those days, um, this was probably a, a fairly decent-sized house. You know, some people think of them as just like a like one room, but that's not necessarily the case. There were ru- one-room houses, but there were also uh, houses with many rooms. And and this seems like just as you read the story, that it was probably the kind of house where you came in off the street into sort of like a courtyard type of a thing, and then you had several rooms that would surround the courtyard whatever it looked like exactly, it was really, really crowded. And it was so crowded that people were overflowing out into the streets. And so we see that as these men come uh, with their friend, trying to get him in to see Jesus, they realize this is hopeless cause. We're never going to make our way through the crowd. So they go up on the roof, which would have been easily accessible because in those days, and even today in Israel, there are these uh, terraced kind of rooftop gardens or patios. Every time we go to Jerusalem, the place where our Bible college, we have a Bible college located in the old city of Jerusalem near the Jaffa Gate, And it's at the Imperial Hotel where we have our students, Uh, that's their dorm, and I love to go up on the uh, roof there. It's like a patio, and you can look over the whole city from the rooftop there. So a common kind of a thing, so they would go up onto the roof, and in this particular case, in this particular location, it was obviously fairly easy to remove the branches and, and some of the, uh, the clay and the baked mud to open up an area for them to lower this man into the room. So the man we read here was a paralytic. And, and obviously from the context of the fact that he's being carried, we know that he at least he couldn't walk. So how much further his paralysis extended beyond that, we don't know. But one of the things that I always like as I read this story is the faith and the enthusiasm and the determination of the friends. I mean, these are the kind of friends you want to have because they're like, okay, we're going to take you to Jesus, and they get there, and there's a crowd, and you know, some might say, look, this is not going to happen today. This is impossible. We might as well just wait and come back another day, but, but not these friends. These friends were determined to get their friend there before the Lord. And Mark mentions the fact here that Jesus took note of their faith. Look in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. So, you know, I mean, just kind of use your imagination for a moment. You're, you're there. You're inside. You're inside and you're sitting, listening to the teaching of Jesus, and, and no doubt you're just, you know, caught up in, in on every word that he's saying, and then all of a sudden you hear this commotion above you. Now, you know, when, when, you're, when you're preaching and there starts to be a commotion, you know, you try to ignore it. You, you try to pretend like, whatever it is, is, is going to go away. And, uh, you know, sometimes it does. Sometimes it's in our day, sometimes it's a cell phone ringing, right? Or sometimes, you know, somebody gets up and they're, you know, moving around and trying to, you know, find another seat or what, whatever, but I, I've had this experience many times, you know, either preaching myself or listening to somebody. When there's a disturbance, you just sort of hope like, okay, we're going to get through this, and then we're going to be able to continue to focus. But this, this situation would have just kind of gone from bad to worse because, you know, they would have heard, no doubt, the, the noise of people up on the, the roof, which to them would have been the ceiling. But then, undoubtedly, as they started to kind of rip up part of the roof stuff, probably started falling down onto the ground. And I wonder if there was even a certain point where everybody just stopped. Jesus had to stop and they all just looked up and just waited for whatever was going to happen to happen. And then suddenly a man is being lowered down on a mat by ropes. That would have been absolutely amazing to see that. But Apparently, Jesus was impressed by this. This was something that you could almost see Jesus even chuckling a little bit. You know, just like, wow, amazing. These guys have faith. And so we see that he took note of their faith. And then as we come to now focusing on the action of Jesus it's clear that Jesus is moved by their faith because he acknowledges their faith. When he saw their faith, it's then that he said to the paralytic, you know, the Lord loves it when we believe that he can and will act on our behalf. Uh, How is it that so often, I think we all are guilty of this. I think when we come to God with things, we so often come feeling like we're burdening him, or feeling like, you know, he's probably not going to answer our request. You know, why, why do we do that? But, but I think it's a fairly common way that, that we approach the Lord. But, of course, that's the opposite of the way the bible tells us that we should approach the lord. Jesus invites us to come, the lord invites us to come. He wants us to come by faith. And and we see that here as these men were demonstrating this faith, Jesus was he was impressed with their faith. And and so it is for us, you know, when we go to the lord and we say, "Lord, you know, I believe, Lord, that you can do this and I believe that you want to do this and I'm going to trust you." You know, God's not saying, no, 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 you know, you shouldn't do that because I'm in charge here and you never know what I'm gonna do. And but but sometimes we think like that. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is, and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's God's word to us. When we come to him, we're to believe that he is were to believe that he is active and he's loving and he's kind and he's generous and and all of those things. And that he rewards those who seek him. So these guys were coming with the right attitude. They came really with, I think, what would be a good example of childlike faith. Jesus commended childlike faith. As a matter of fact, he said to his own close followers, those disciples around him, he said, you know, unless your faith becomes like that of a child, you won't even enter the kingdom. So Jesus commends childlike faith. And these guys are really demonstrating childlike faith, childlike in the sense that they just believe that God's going to do something here. They aren't so concerned to try to figure it out. They're just We know if we can just get our friend there to Jesus, he's going to do something. And indeed, Jesus did do something. The the next thing I want us to note is the tenderness of Jesus toward the man. And so when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. The word son is actually... In the Greek, the word child, rather than son. So Jesus says, child. And and Matthew tells us that Jesus actually said something else that Mark doesn't record. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I like the way the NLT renders it. It says, be encouraged, my child. That's what Jesus said to him. Now, you got to just wonder for a moment what the, you know, what the paralytic himself thought about all of this. Now, it says when Jesus saw their faith, like we already pointed out, was he, was he included in the there? Was it the faith of the four men, or was it the faith of all five of them? Did the paralytic himself say, hey, why don't we go up on the roof and you guys can lower me down? Or did the paralytic, he was just sort of at the mercy of these guys We don't really know exactly what the case was, but we see the tenderness of Jesus toward him. And notice the thing that Jesus says. He says to him, son or child, your sins are forgiven you. Now, here's a question. Why would Jesus say this? Because obviously in one sense, that was not why the man was brought there to have his sins forgiven he was brought there because he was paralyzed and they believed that jesus could heal him but but jesus says the very first thing he says he says be of good cheer your sins are forgiven so so why would jesus say this well perhaps the man was possessed of a terrible fear, born of Jewish belief that his sins might prevent his healing. You see, that was a, that was a teaching among the Jews at the time, that your sin would actually prevent you from getting any kind of help from God, any kind of blessing from God, and in this case, any kind of a healing. And maybe the man, just being aware of his own sinful state, maybe he was dropped into the situation with that sort of anxiety that, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, why why should I expect that Jesus is going to do anything for me? So it could have been that. But it could be also that sin was at the root of his physical affliction. Now, generally speaking, in the scripture, illness and disease are not directly connected to individual sin. So generally speaking, that's the case. But there are times when the sickness is directly connected to the sin. Now... Some people have misunderstood this, and there are even people today who think that any time uh, you know, there's any kind of a sickness, especially with a, a, you know, a believing person, that that sickness is due to sin in their life. And they say, okay, well, you know, before you're ever going to get healed, you've got to repent of the sin. And then people live under this burden like, you know, God's never going to heal me or, or, or touch me or have mercy on me because I've got sin in my life. I've, I've tried to confess every sin that I could possibly, you know, think of, but, but nothing really changes. Because the fact of the matter is that's not necessarily the case. So sometimes on a few occasions, yes, there's a direct link. But most of the time, there is no direct link, but perhaps on this occasion, there was a direct link between this man's paralysis and his sin, and it is something that he would have been well aware of. So he would have been dropped into this situation knowing himself. Maybe nobody else knew, but maybe he did know, indeed, that there was, at the root of this, was, you know, maybe back sometime, way in the past, there was some sin that led to this. So it could have been the case there. So Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. But there's another thing that's happening here. And here's what it is. Remember that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from all around Galilee, Judea, and and Jerusalem are there. They're there to find fault with him. And so undoubtedly, Jesus is intentionally confronting the unbelief of the Pharisees and the scribes. So that would be another reason why Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus did this deliberately to bring out the resistance toward him that was in the hearts of the religious leaders of Israel. Now, remember when we started the gospel of Mark, remember I told you that we're already a year into the ministry of Jesus. So a year has already taken place that, that neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke even address it. They, 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 they pick up the ministry uh, with the Galilean ministry of Jesus. But Jesus had had a ministry that was predominantly in Judea for a year earlier. And as I pointed out, John chapter one through five that's the record of the events that happened prior to this. So the reason why these religious leaders would have come from Judea and Jerusalem is because they had already had a confrontation with Jesus in Jerusalem. And it was there that Jesus had healed that lame man. And it was there that they had accused him of violating the Sabbath and those things. So, so this group that's there that day, they're there on a mission to entrap Jesus. And he knows that, of course. And so interestingly, he puts out the challenge by using these terms. My child, your sins are forgiven. He was making an indirect claim to be God that's what he was doing. He was making an indirect claim to be God. Now, they, of course, were right about one thing. As we go on, it says, and some of the scribes, verse six, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they were right about that. They were right that only God could forgive sin. They were wrong about the identity of the Messiah. That's what they were wrong about. And so the Messiah, or as Jesus prefers, the son of man, he tells them that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Verse 8, but immediately. When Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he rose up, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So this is a contest that's happening here between Jesus and these religious leaders. And he's just thrown the knockout punch by basically just pronouncing this man healed, but by doing so through the forgiveness of his sins. Now, We need to understand that forgiving sin is the right of God alone. Only God can forgive sin because all sin is ultimately against God. As King David said in his own confession recorded in Psalm 51... He, he cried out, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. And David said this in response to his, his own sin against um, uh, Bathsheba and Uriah. But, but David takes it beyond them. Of course, it affected them. But David says against you and you only have I sinned. And that is true. Sin is ultimately against God. Now, even though the priest during the Old Testament period, and we under the New Testament relationship can declare someone's sin forgiven, we can't actually forgive their sin. So under the Old Testament system, the worshiper came and offered the prescribed sacrifices. And when everything was said and done, the priest could assure them that your your sins are covered. And so likewise, remember when Jesus would ultimately, or eventually, I mean, send out his uh, disciples into the world with the gospel, he says, whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But it's not giving us the power to forgive sin. It's giving us the ability to declare a person forgiven based upon their response to the gospel. So... I can say to a person, based upon their putting their faith in Jesus, or based upon their repentance, or based upon their confession of sin, I can say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, but it's not because I've forgiven their sins. You know, when I was growing up as a Roman Catholic, we would go to the confessional, and we would go in and kneel down before the priest who was on the other side of the wall there. It was a terrifying experience, actually. And you'd have to think of everything that you could remember having done wrong. And you had to tell that to the priest. And then, you know, he would absolve you. And then he would, you know, give you your penance and so forth. But the fact of the matter is he couldn't absolve us. Because he didn't have the power to do that. None of us have the power to do that. Again, we can pronounce a person forgiven but we do not do the forgiving in in regard to the sin itself. Now, I can forgive a person for the sins they commit against me, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are forgiven by God. One must directly confess to God. For
0: the month of June, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Gospel by Ray Ortland. Are you experiencing the glory of Christ made visible through the beauty of gospel-infused relationships in the church? Well, in his book, The Gospel, Ray Ortland shares a biblical examination of what he calls a gospel culture, a culture that both fosters Christian relationships and is attractive and welcoming to those outside the faith. To develop a biblical understanding of gospel culture, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order The Gospel by Ray Ortland. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark.